You're listening to Halford and Bruff. This isn't coming from the agent. I'm telling you that there's one team out there that says, if necessary, they're willing to go to nine for Bo Horvath. Let's be honest. In terms of their team game, the only thing that's been consistent about the way the Canucks have played this year is that they've been inconsistent. They've been fighting for their lives, and it hasn't changed in over a year now. Can you imagine what that would do to your poor psyche? I couldn't care less about the team struggling. Good morning, Vancouver. 601 on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. It is Halford. It is Bruff. It is Sportsnet 650. We are coming to you live from the Kintec Studios in beautiful Fairview Slopes in Vancouver. Jason, good morning. Good morning. Hey, dog. Good morning to you. Good morning. Laddie, good morning to you as well. Hello, hello. Halford and Bruff in the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. I also mentioned we are coming to you live from the Kintec Studios. Jason, tell people Kintec, go. We love Kintec and Kintec Footwear and Orthotics, Canada's favorite orthotics provider supported by over 1,500 five-star Google reviews. Find your perfect fit at Kintech.net. Ooh, he card. Read good. Big Tuesday show on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Uh, guest list, 630, going to be our first guest, so just about 29 minutes from now. Greg Wyshynski from ESPN is going to join us, do our usual whip around the NHL. Uh, he and Arda Ocal. They host The Drop on ESPN. After the DeMar Hamlin um, event of last Monday night now, it's so long ago, it feels like it was just yesterday, uh, they actually talked to Chris Pronger on their show because Pronger went through a similar cardiac event all over two decades ago playing for the St. Louis Blues. Was that on a blocked shot? It Did he was. take a puck to the chest? Yep. Right. Similar So in similar the sense... to DeMar Hamlin in that there was contact to the chest. Right. And I know what it's, I actually don't know what, I know it's, there's some Latin phrase for what happens to your heart in that sort of situation. We'll figure it out later. Uh, who else is coming up? Uh, seven o'clock on the program, Sean Gentili from The Athletic in Pittsburgh is going to join us. Uh, we will set things up for tonight's game between the Canucks and the Penguins. Four o'clock from Pittsburgh, Sean will join us to talk about a Pittsburgh team that has had a lot going on. In the last little bit, uh, they suffered a pretty bad losing streak up until this weekend's game against Arizona in Arizona. Then they flew all the way to Montreal to uh, attend the funeral for Crystal Tank's father, then flew all the way back out to Vancouver uh, for, or sorry, then flew back to Pittsburgh for the game tonight. So very eventful last 24, 48 hours for this team, which is scuttling a little bit. Uh, Sean Gentili will join us at 7 o'clock. To talk about that. Eight o'clock it is Scu- the dr- scuffling, not scuttling. You scuttle a ship a ship. You you scuffle as far as you're you're getting uh as far as your your What's the old scuttle butt? Yeah. Can you turn the lights on in here? It's scuffle butt. I just realized the yeah. lights aren't on. It's super dark. Yeah, there you go, A Dog. A Dog, come on. Are we not prepped for the, the show lights. or something? What's going on here? Does it not I I just kept looking and I noticed it was really dark and then I looked on the camera mm-hmm. and it was really dark. So all you do is complain about the lights, and then when there's lights <laughs> off I complain because I know we have to. There you ah! Go. ah! It's like a vampire in here. Okay, so ah! Wyshynski at 6.30, Gentili, when? 7 o'clock, and then the Drancer, 8 o'clock. We'll set up the other side of the Canucks-Penguins game tonight, 4 o'clock from Pittsburgh. Uh, there's a bunch of games tonight in the National Hockey League. Winnipeg's got Detroit, Calgary's got St. Louis, the Canadian teams. Seven NBA games. Your beloved Newcastle 
in the Carabao Cup today. I know you'll be you'll be dialed into that one. Well, they lost in the FA Cup to who was it? Some bad team. Oh God! It was it was like they were one of the ones that that fell to a minnow. There was, was a few like, of them. It wasn't like Sheffield Wednesday, was it? I think it might have been Sheffield. It wasn't, Wednesday. wasn't the two Sheffield teams are still alive and Wrexham. And Stevenage, I, my I, favorite team. I watched, Stevenage. I watched the Wrexham game when they beat Coventry, four right. three. They came back run. in that game, didn't they? Yeah, it was it was all over the place. It was a very entertaining match. And mm-hmm. then and then Stevenage, which I had to look <laughs> up. They also recorded a famous victory in the FA Cup. But yeah, it's Carabao Cup today. So anyway, there's a lot coming up on the show. Suffice to say, but uh, we need to go back and tell you what happened. Hey, did you guys see the game last night? No. no. What happened? I missed all the action because I was... We know how busy your life can be. What happened? Missed that? You missed that? What happened? So one of the more interesting developments about the Canucks as they go into tonight's game in Pittsburgh has nothing to do with the actual team itself, but rather the president of Hockey Ops, Jim Rutherford. He's making a return to Pittsburgh here and a lot of the Pittsburgh media reached out to get the sort of welcome back, Jim. Let's discuss your tenure here type pieces. Uh, that includes Seth Rohrabaugh from uh, the Tribune Live, Pittsburgh Tribune in Pittsburgh. It was an interesting article on a number of fronts. Rutherford is a candid guy to begin with, I think because he also was going back to the scene of where he had, let's face it, the best times as an executive in the National Hockey League, mm-hmm. the back-to-back Stanley Cups. He's greeted warmly. He's treated warmly. And he opened up about a lot of different things. Um, There were two really in particular. One was about the current hockey team over which he presides. Yeah. And then the other part of it was looking back on his time in Pittsburgh and kind of having regrets as to how it ended. Mm -hmm. So, uh, And it ended because of COVID. Correct. Essentially. Yeah. And, you know, he said that he was in a mental space where he felt like he was unfit to do his job at the level that he had kind of sustained in Pittsburgh. And then he really sort of said, and th- now this is my impression from it, that there was regret about how it ended, and then maybe it just should have ended in Pittsburgh, the place where he won the back-to-back Stanley Cups in 2016 and 2017. That's what you got from that that that, that, he, that he was saying? What, yeah. Like in, in what way? In a way that maybe he, I mean, are you saying that he regrets no, taking the Vancouver no, 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 job? No, 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 one could be separate from the other. Okay. But, I mean, he did come like just flat out and said, yeah, I regret the way that the way things ended in mm-hmm. Pittsburgh, and I, th- you can say those things, right? You can look back on particular times in your life and say, "I wish that it ended differently," or maybe right. that was a good place to call it a career. Does it sound yeah. like he'd still be part of the organization if not for COVID, if not having to um, deal with the working conditions that COVID placed on him and everyone else in the world? That's exactly what he said. He said, "Oh, I wish it had ended differently in Pittsburgh." but I've been quarantined with my family for 11 months. What we went through there, it affects you mentally. I wasn't in a position at that time to go forward to do my job properly. I wasn't mm-hmm. in the right state of mind. But that's a situation in life where uh, you need to change, you make the change. And in the same article, Rutherford did mention that, again, and he's been pretty consistent with his messaging. He loves the Vancouver market. He loves playing in a Canadian market. Sorry, he loves uh, presiding in a Canadian market. Speaking of that market, there's another major takeaway here. And... I think it's, it goes back to our, our theory, our assession, assertion, sorry, that um, maybe he and Patrick Alvin misread just how frustrated and angst-ridden this market is. It's not just about missing no, it's the not, playoffs. It's not, just how, it's not how frustrated the market is. The market is, um, it's, it's, it's why the market 
is frustrated. Right. And here's the quote that he had. Um, a big thing here, and I totally understand, is the frustration of having a franchise for as long as they have, getting to the Stanley Cup Finals a few times, but not winning the Cup. Okay, yeah, that's absolutely true. Then he goes on to say, and then, of course, even worse than that, is a number of years without being a playoff team. So I think that, listen, he might actually understand it. We don't know. I'm just throwing it out there that it's not simply not being a playoff team. That's not it. Mm -hmm. The frustration in the market isn't just like, oh, wow, we haven't had much playoff action in the last decade. They had the bubble, but that's about it, right? That's part of it, for sure. But it has to go deeper than that. And I think you have to go all the way back to, I don't know, 2014, probably, when the Canucks probably should have just undertaken a more aggressive rebuild. Instead, they fire Mike Gillis, and they bring in Jim Benning, and Jim Benning tries to turn the Canucks around in a hurry. And that philosophy has never really changed. Mm-hmm. We always say, along. We, we always say, we always say, what's the what's the most important question? How important is next season? And under Jim Benning, it's been pretty much every season's important. Yep. Right. There's no acceptance of, well, you know, we can maybe lean into losing for a couple of years. Um, we can be the team that uh, weaponizes its cap space. We can be the team that trades um, players to teams that are in win-now mode and we kind of take advantage of their impatience because they are in win-now mode. We can be the team that you know tries to win the draft lottery and gets the first overall pick or the second overall pick or the third overall pick. And those are the advantages you have when there aren't expectations. But the problem is every season the Canucks put expectations on themselves and that means that they go out and they sign guys in free agency. Mm-hmm. And how many of those things have gone wrong? Or they acquire a player like Oliver Ekman Larson. Or they trade away draft picks. They trade away young, young prospects for guys like Eric Gabranson. That's where the frustration stems from. It's not the fans' impatience. It's the team's impatience. So maybe Rutherford has a deeper understanding of this dynamic. Maybe he really does get it. Maybe he doesn't. I think the important question is, is does it really matter? Because I think that a lot of executives are hardwired to think one particular way and almost take it as a badge of honor that their decisions and impact won't be swayed by outside influences like fans. I think that Rutherford might just be a guy that, whether he understands the market or not, has an approach that has served him well throughout history. And he's hardwired to keep on doing it that way. Or maybe there's a feeling uh, within Rogers Arena or, uh, you know, within the ownership group or within the um, management group that there is a a section of fans and maybe they're the ticket paying customers that are frustrated by the lack of playoffs and they want results now. They're shelling out thousands of dollars every year for season's tickets and they want results and they want them now. Maybe there's that feeling. Maybe we're misreading things. I don't think so. I think there are plenty of season ticket holders, people that do shell out a lot of money, that want the Canucks to go about their business differently. They're willing to invest that time of watching uh, 
a rebuilding team, which can be, frankly, frustrating if you look at some of the rebuilding teams like right now, like Montreal is in a terrible way. I watched their game against Seattle last night. That was in Montreal, and Seattle dominated them. That's hard to watch. But you know what else is hard to watch? A team for a decade that is trying its best to be good and is still bad. That's even more frustrating. Because now in the back of your mind, you're kind of like, I don't even have hope. Like, I'm I'm going to this game, and, like, I don't even have – I don't, I don't know how we're going to get out of this. Um, so there was a couple of actual remarks about the current roster construction, the team, as Jim Rutherford has put it together. I think one that really drew a lot of people's attention was when Rutherford said that he knew managing the salary cap was going to be a challenge and that it's probably been a quote-unquote little bigger challenge than he figured in trying to unravel the cap situation. When he said that, I saw a lot of people grab that quote and then right underneath put the screen grabs of the JT Miller extension and like the Ilya Mikhaev contract Yeah, right, in, right, right below it. And it is and it has always been hard to understand why this management group on one hand said openly we have cap problems. We're trying to clear cap space. We know what our objective is and then almost put them in more cap prison with the deals that they signed. And I also just don't think it it reflects well on their um where their knowledge of how things are going. If they think if they thought that unraveling the cap situation in Vancouver was gonna be not easy, but easier than it has been. Everyone could see that it was gonna be hard to unravel those contracts. Mm-hmm. Not only because some of those contracts were underperforming but also because there's a pandemic and there's a flat cap. And well before Jim Rutherford took the job in Vancouver and Patrick Alvin took the job in Vancouver, we knew that there was going to be a flat cap for a while. Mm-hmm. We knew that this was going to be a frustration. We knew that teams were going to prioritize centers and defensemen and not wingers, which meant Multiple. guys like, which, yeah, like, which meant guys like, you know, Brock Besser and Connor Garland and, Tanner Pearson, those guys weren't going to have a lot of value on the market. Right. And, and, and we, yeah. we also knew that teams were getting smarter about um, older players, older players like Tyler Myers mm-hmm. or Oliver Ekman Larson, that there wasn't going to be a huge market for those guys. Yeah. So I don't think that reflects very – and actually I remember Jim Rutherford that might have been an interview on, on, on this station was asked, did you underestimate – how hard it was going to be. And he said, no, 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 I don't think so. And now, now he's admitting that he did underestimate how difficult it was going to yeah, be. Yeah, so at least, he, at least he admitted that he's underestimated it. That's great. That's, that's a fine. Step, that's a step in the right direction, right? <laughs> acknowledgement is important. Uh, I would almost say acknowledgement is power. But it, it does speak to um, – this is a real current snapshot, by the way, of where Rutherford's at, where the organization is at. I mean, I'm not trying to put too much emphasis on these quotes, but I just think that there's a lot there to chew on because he's very candid. I want to come back to their understanding of the market. Sure. Regardless of whether or not it would affect their actions, as maybe they've just been given specific marching orders, like we're not rebuilding, so figure it out. Fix this situation and fix it yesterday. I don't know. To speculate on that stuff, all you can do is go, well, these are, these are their actions. We don't have anything on the record, obviously. The owner doesn't talk much. So we don't know that sort of stuff. Um, But I do want to talk about, um, just in a general sense, how important it is for a management group to come in and understand the intricacies of the market. 
Now, some people out there will be like, it doesn't matter at all. They just go about their business. They do things the way they've always done it. Jim Rutherford has won multiple Stanley Cups. He can probably come in and say, I don't really care about the market. I'm just going to do whatever I did to be successful before. But all I can say is from a guy that works in media, personally speaking, I'd be terrified to do a show in another market. I'd be terrified to go to Calgary or Edmonton or Toronto or Montreal or one of the big markets down in the States and they would ship ship Halford and I in and because they'd be like, Oh, you guys have an okay radio show in Vancouver. Why don't you come do this in Philadelphia? There's no way right? it won't fail. You come do it in Philadelphia, right? I I would be terrified to do that because I don't know I don't know the intricacies. I don't know the little things about that market mm-hmm. that have either caused excitement or caused frustration. I don't know the folk heroes that that go back, you know, all those years, or I don't know you know, if, if if you're going to a market where there's been frustration, I don't know exactly why there's frustration. I th- I could probably have an inkling, mm-hmm. but I don't know the specific moves, everything, the narrative. Yep. I don't know the narrative how of how the market has gotten this frustrated. Like saying that the market is frustrated because they haven't made the playoffs in the last little while is so surface level. Like sure. that is the most surface level thing ever. Like, is it true? Yeah, we'd love to have a playoff team. We don't, but but it's so much more than that, right? And you know, part of me almost says like, well, you can't blame the guy for not knowing every single intricacy because, as you pointed out with your analogy, like if you're not from here, you haven't been around for a long time, it hasn't really kind of been burned into you. Like, there's not a Vancouver Canucks market for dummies book that's sitting around where you can just kind of get up to speed. It takes a while, right? Yeah. Now, um, the other part of this is, like, what I came back to is I don't know if it necessarily matters to anyone involved there. And I I do appreciate that element because, you know, sometimes the best course of action isn't to empathize with, you know, a a suffering fan base. It's to be laser-focused on whatever you see as the goal to get out where you're going to either live by the sword or die by it. Well, you mentioned that a lot of hockey executives wear their impatience as – a badge of honor. Sure. I know Brian Burke did and Jim Benning did as well. They both said, they both have quotes out there. It's like, I'm not a patient man. I want things to happen. Right. But it got Burke into trouble in Toronto and the same for Benning in Vancouver. Yeah. So whenever I hear that, like, it's, it's, it's almost like a, you're almost like bragging. You're like, I, I don't, I don't stand for losing. I think Jim Benning's quote was like, I can't watch losing hockey. Sure. I was like, well, you got good at it here. <laughs> There's a lot of it. I mean, it turns out you can, Jim. Like, congratulations, you overcame it. Um, but impatience. If there's one thing that really, really frustrates me, and like I, I, I'll get my what do you call it? You get your hackles up. Okay. Is when I hear the sentiment that Vancouver is so impatient that it can't handle a rebuild. No, you're impatient, team. Yeah, that's, you, yeah, you're the ones that you're have gone out there. You're projecting. You're the ones that have gone out there and tried to take shortcuts, tried to make these fancy trades, these hockey trades, or traded away draft picks or traded away futures, or gone into contracts like a Louis Erickson or Tyler Myers. When people out there said, don't, don't sign those because there's such a thing, uh, you know, in Louis Erickson's case, it was an aging curve, or in Tyler Myers's case, it was like, hey, you know what? The analytics don't paint a very great picture of this guy. Mm-hmm. So don't 
Don't come out of your boots and sign this contract. Don't go out and trade futures for Connor Garland and, more importantly, Oliver Ekman-Larsen. Those are shortcut moves. Those are moves made to go, hey, we're going to be a better team next season. But they come at the expense of the long-term future, and they come at the, come at the expense of the overall team. Uh, we can continue this conversation on throughout the show. There's going to be a lot of Canucks talk today, obviously, throughout the next two and a half hours. Drancer's going to join us at 8. We can focus on this. We can also look ahead to tonight's game. It is the Canucks and the aforementioned Pittsburgh Penguins, 4 o'clock from Pittsburgh. Uh, the Penguins are an interesting lot as well. Sean Gentilly's going to join us it's in the 7 o'clock hour uh, to talk about that side of things. The longest playoffs, active playoff streak in the National Hockey League, if I'm not mistaken. Not necessarily. By a mile. Yeah, it was, it's not even close. 16 years, it. and I think, 16 years for Pittsburgh. I think the next longest might be Nashville, believe it or not, at eight years. And it's in danger because, one, the Metropolitan Division is so deep, and two, the East has got a lot more competitive teams than the West this year, just the way that it is, right? Uh, so the Penguins were, at one point, well above 500, and not that long ago, 19-9-4, and four, I think they were on December 20th, but they really hit the skids lately. That win that I mentioned in Arizona snapped a streak where they didn't have a win in seven or eight, and it's fine to have the record that they do, but it's so tough, again, in their division, in their conference, they're scratching and clawing for a playoff spot right now, and a lot of people are clamoring, I, include, I was reading a couple articles from The Athletic, like, uh, Ron Hextall, do something. Like, right. You have to make a move here because the the man similar to Edmonton in some ways, right? And the, you can see what the the commonalities are between the two is that you've got another terrific season from Drysidle and McDavid in Edmonton. You've got the last vestiges of Crosby and Malkin in Pittsburgh. You you got to prop those groups up and try and get results. But the Penguins haven't had them lately, so it'll be interesting to see. What happens there? We'll talk to Sean Gentilly in the 7 o'clock hour and Drancer in the 8 o'clock hour about all that. Uh, real quick, before we move things along to Greg Wyshynski, other things from last night that we should touch on. I just will mention that the NCAA National Championship was decided, and it was it was lousy across the board. I was so None dis- of it was good. Yeah, I was so disappointed in that because I actually wasn't able to watch much of the first half. Good. So, no, but I was kind of like, oh, I'll, I'll, I'll sit down. You know, the game started here at 4.30. I'll sit down after dinner and watch the second half and hope and I'll do my prep for the right. show today, for today's show, and, uh, and I'll uh, hopefully enjoy a, a fun finish. And I, and I didn't watch it. I, I didn't even watch. I saw the score at halftime. I don't know. I can't remember what it was, 38-7 to 7 or 30, something. 38-7. Like and I'm kind of like, well, I'm not, I'm not going to watch this. So I watched some hockey, but, you know, it was – the national there's only one national title game every year and you want it to be entertaining and TCU had a bit of a miracle season right they had some crazy comebacks during the regular season uh they get to the final four and then they get to the final game and Georgia was a 13 point favorite and for good reason it turned out it just looked like it, the game was way the the game and the stage and the opponent was way too big for TCU and it's disappointing because you when you when you have a national title game you just want to be entertained by it. So if you missed it, Stetson Bennett, who is apparently thirty six years old, uh, he threw two touchdown passes, ran for two scores, sixty five to seven. Georgia beats TCU in the national title game. Obviously, that's the biggest blowout loss or blowout victory, depending on how you look at it, in CFB college playoff final format history. Uh, I think that is not good for anybody involved to to have that chasm 
in a national title game where people are just basically seeding the championship to Georgia. Because, and all I saw on Twitter was, they're too good. They're yeah. built different. Stetson, like the Stetson Bennett thing. Stetson Bennett's older than Justin Herbert. Mm-hmm. He was a walk-on, wasn't he, originally? He was a walk-on red shirt way back in 1884, right. when the school first started, actually, mm-hmm. and right before the Civil War. It was great. And then he left for two years to go to junior college, came back, and hadn't used a single year of eligibility yet <laughs> because, of course, he had played that freshman year. Came back, was the backup at Georgia, then slowly became the starter, then got an extra year of eligibility because of the COVID-interrupted season. Right. So all of a sudden, you're looking at a guy that, I mean, you want to talk about overmatched. Like, he went went into that game. I don't think TCU put a hand on him the entire game. Mm -hmm. He was completely surrounded by a superior offensive line. And he's 25 years old. He's a a mature adult. He is the broken Rafferty. Of college football at that point, where he was just out there being a mature prospect. Well, they they could easily win again next year. Well, that would be three um, in a row, right? And it's just it, the only thing I really wanted to say was like it's kind of. I just don't think it's good when a program can be that dominant and have a sixty-five to seven victory on a nationally televised game. Where I don't know, you, you didn't watch the second half. The the poor broadcasters, everyone were tap dancing, yeah, oh yeah. trying it's, to come up with something to say. It's brutal. Yeah. It's it, it, it's brutal. Um, but that's college football. There are some really really good teams, uh, a bunch in the mushy middle, and then some bad ones. Yeah. I'm not saying TCU is one of the bad ones, but they're certainly not one of the elite ones, as it turns out last night. Uh, the Seattle Kraken won again. This is a story, by the way. That we need to pay more attention. The Kraken to. are 23, 12, and four. They beat the Montreal Canadiens last night 4 nothing, and they really dominated them. Montreal is in a bad way. For all the excitement about uh, earlier in the season where not only were they rebuilding, but they're actually playing pretty well, that's over now. The Canucks broke them, by the way. That when they blew that, oh, yeah, yeah, that, yeah. that crazy four that nothing crazy game, the four nothing lead that they blew here at Rogers well, Arena, that yeah, broke the abs in half. They're, they're they're terrible defensively, but the thing in Montreal was this is part of the plan. Yeah. They were supposed to be bad. You know, the, their future looks a lot brighter than a lot of other teams in the NHL. The Edmonton Oilers, they lost again. We had Tyler Uremtruck on the show yesterday from Oilers Nation talking about this next string of games that the Oilers have a lot against the Pacific Division. Well, it started last night in Los Angeles, and the Kings beat them 6-3. And the Kings are one of the teams that the Oilers have their sights on to, I don't know, if the Oilers fall out of a playoff spot and Colorado gets in, maybe the Kings are the team that they try and – chase down or maybe it's Seattle right now it is not looking good for the Edmonton Oilers we'll talk about all these stories with Greg Wyshynski coming up next on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet 650. Six thirty-three on a Tuesday. Happy Tuesday, everybody. Halford Bruff, Sportsnet six fifty. Halford and Bruff of the morning is brought to you by the Delari family of Acura dealers. Experience the Delari difference today by visiting your nearest Delari Acura dealer today. That music can only mean one thing. It's time now for Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford and Bruff show on Sportsnet six fifty. Good morning, Gregory. How are you? I'm good. good. I suppose. You know, what's wrong? doing all right. What's doing wrong, what's than wrong T- Greg? Doing better, doing better than TCU, I can tell you that. We, we talked briefly about that. I don't know if you're aware, but the national title game did not capture the hearts and imaginations of Vancouver, at least judging yeah. by the complete lack of response in our text messaging basket. 
But uh, I just all, all I really had to say for it was like that that probably isn't great for anybody involved, even Georgia. That there's that big of a chasm at the top of college football, where also a 25 year old guy still has eligibility and is able to go out and do what Stetson Bennett the fourth or third or wherever he is did the fourth. Yeah, Stetson but congratulations to those who took uh, Georgia minus the 40. That was a pretty good <laughs> night for you last night. <laughs> uh, did you happen to stay up late enough to watch the Edmonton Oilers lose in Los Angeles last night? I, I only saw bits and pieces of that game, but you know, I talked I talked to Ken Holland, their GM yesterday, who. Uh, told me uh, as we reported on ESPN that Evander Kane is uh, ahead of schedule right. in his return from a lacerated left wrist. That's obviously really good news for Edmonton. They could certainly use the boost. Um, I don't know. There, you know, I, I look at I look at the Oilers um, and their kind of up and downness. I mean, like, I you know, like they've gotten some real quality wins um, in the last few weeks. Uh, they've gotten some frustrating losses in the last few weeks. I mean, this is a team that's got wins over like Dallas and, and Seattle, but I mean, they've, they've been unable to really kind of capture any momentum when it appears they've built it. So they're kind of just one of those teams right now that's, that's stuck in the mud a little bit. You know, they're just like, they're not, they're not in the, the upper echelon of the conference. They're not the dregs of the conference. They're just in that mushy middle and, and kind of, probably and I talked to Ken a little bit about this kind of trying to define who they are you know what what are we are we a true contender are we a team that should be a little bit more cautious around the trade deadline like what are we and I feel like they're one of maybe like a dozen teams in that spot right now did you get a chance to mention to Ken Holland that the Oilers were your preseason Stanley Cup pick (laughs) you know I he's aware of it I I made the pick, and and you know, as as a as a fake prognosticator, I always like to tell people uh, what I've what I've been doing, you know, what what sure, I've done, sure. what what curse I've bestowed upon their franchise. I didn't do it with Lou Lamarillo last year because I mean, what's the point? He's not he's not taking that call anyway. But I did I did uh, I did let Ken know that I had selected the Edmonton Oilers, and and I believe his reaction at the time was. Uh, thank you or oh no, I think, or something along those lines <laughs> was his reaction. But um, I still have faith that they can pull it together. I mean, I, I think, you know, obviously bringing, getting Kane back is a, is a huge boost to that lineup, not a cure-all by any means, but a huge boost. They, they just don't necessarily play playoff caliber d- defense right now. And, and obviously, you know, the goaltending is, is, uh, is inconsistent at best. So there's, there's reasons to be concerned. And, I, and honestly, boys, like the, one, of the, one of the biggest concerns I'd have if I'm the Oilers is the, the mass changing in the Western Conference. I mean, you look at the, the emergence of the Seattle Kraken um, as a, uh, a seeded playoff contender in the Pacific, and then you look at the ascendance of the Winnipeg Jets in the Central. I mean, those are two things that maybe we didn't count on before the season to be happening, and now all of a sudden – that wild card spot looks a little bit more crowded. Oh, and by the way, uh, the Colorado Avalanche are going to get their act together at some point. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. Like, if the assumption is that Colorado pulls it together either just by playing better or getting healthier or making a, a trade before the the deadline or all three of them and they get into the final eight in the Western Conference, who is the most likely team to fall out? Is that the Edmonton Oilers? Yeah, I mean, it's going to be one of the Alberta teams, I think. Like, I, I, I'm not, I'm not necessarily a believer in in St. Louis being able to kind of continue this, uh, as Bill Simmons calls it, Ewing theory of having your best players out of the lineup, and all of a sudden you, you start winning games left right. and right. 
um, you know, I don't think that's going to be sustainable. So it would probably be one of the Albertan teams if, if Colorado gets their act together. Because I, I don't, I mean, I think the the top three in the Central are pretty solid. I mean, in Minnesota, they still have another gear to be found, um, even though they've been playing better. Dallas, as I told you guys at the beginning of the season, it's the Pete DeBoer effect. They're not, they're fine. They're not going anywhere. And then Winnipeg, again, like I, I totally underestimated two factors. One, that they just needed a guy like Rick Bonus to go in there and crack some skulls and, and all of a sudden guys that have shown absolutely no interest at all in their careers in playing defense are playing defense. And then also that Connor Hellebuck would probably recapture his form, which is, I think, the real reason why they are where they are. So <clears throat> I think if you look at the teams in that mix of the wild card right now, you'd have to say to yourself that, you know, the Kraken are still in play, the Albertan teams are still in play, and then Colorado is is the, the one you have to kind of worry about if you're all three of those teams. What you said about Rick Bonus and the Winnipeg Jets and Rick Bonus getting <clears throat> these guys to commit to playing defense, uh, we've been talking about that a lot in the last few days here because we're wondering if the Vancouver Canucks are looking at their situation and going, man, it's pretty tough to make tr- uh, changes. It's pretty tough to shed cap space. Uh, maybe the answer, if there's going to be an answer, uh, maybe we'll put all our eggs in the basket of – bringing in a new coach to replace Bruce Boudreaux and maybe it's Barry Trotz or maybe it's one of these defense first coaches that can teach the Canucks how to play with some structure. And maybe that's going to be the, um, the hope for next season. That's, and that's tricky though. Like, first of all, I'm not, I know that Barry, Barry Trotz is a great coach. I mean, like his, his, he's won more games than I've uh, probably watched in my life uh, as a hockey fan. Um, that being said, it, it, the, the league's in a place right now where I'm not entirely positive that a Barry Trotz team is what you want, right? Because those teams aren't even even his best teams weren't really known for a dynamic offense. I think what you want is a John Cooper team. What you want are the New Jersey Devils. What you want is a team that can play high pressure offensive hockey while also being able to take care of their own end at the same time aggressive going after the, the, the puck carrier. Like there's, there's aspects of the way that teams are playing now that don't necessarily lend themselves to a Barry Trotz team. And so the, the key is one, can you find a coach that's able to kind of coach the modern game defensively uh, that isn't going to sacrifice offense or defense because you can't in this league right now. And then two, are the people on the roster going to be able to play that style? <laughs> you know, do you get, the level of defensive commitment necessary to execute a game plan like that. And, and that's, I think that's probably you don't know until you try with the Canucks, but it's certainly an aspect of, of, of this whole, you know, thought process of what the next step should be. We're speaking to Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford and Bruff show on sports Six Fifty. 650 wish. I know I didn't see the interview that you and Arda had with Chris Pronger on the drop last week. I saw it referenced a bunch of different times, and I know that you were retweeting some stuff on your timeline. Can you tell our listeners what that conversation was like, what you guys discussed? Because uh, that was obviously in the aftermath of the DeMar Hamlin cardiac incident on Monday Night Football, which, of course, was on ESPN, broadcast live. So you guys were obviously close to the entire event. What was the conversation like with Pronger? Yeah, that was one of those deals where we just feel, felt kind of weird doing a show without at least referencing the, the biggest thing that happened in sports and, and mm-hmm. both kind of feeling bummed about it a little bit. So having Pronger on to talk about what happened to him, I thought was, was interesting. Um, you know, he, uh, for those who don't know, he took a, a, a 
shot to the chest. His his heart briefly stopped on the ice, and um, it was a, a happened in a playoff game, and, and it was a whole thing. Um, but the, the game was played on, and and you know he 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 kind of indicates that it's not nearly as severe as what uh, Hamlin went through. But the one thing I wanted to know about Chris was like, ever look back at that moment? And wonder, hey, you know, maybe maybe we don't play the rest of the game when I'm in in that kind of sure, situation. Sure. And he's like, he's like, no, man. He's like, you know, I I woke up and I remember seeing the banners above the, my head uh, in in the roof, and I and I remember kind of waking up again in the ambulance on the way to the hospital, and and it, it was really scary. Like it's a it's a very scary thing that happens. But he said, you know, everybody took care of the situation and. And uh, he didn't feel like his life was in danger. It was a much less severe kind of situation than what we had in the, the Bills Bengals game. But it did make me think, and, and I, I mentioned this off the top of the drop, and you can watch the episode on YouTube where we talk about this a little bit. But like, I really do feel like since the Pronger thing to now, we've come we've come a long way as a culture insofar as like understanding player safety. Like, whether I'm not 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 necessarily even talking about like headshot rules. I'm talking about like thinking about what happens when you have a player that's severely injured during a game, thinking about what happens to players after their playing careers are done or, or when they're in concussion protocol. Like I really do feel like that even someone as cold hearted as me, who sometimes will look at these people as names on a roster or even worse point totals on a bet. Um, I, I have more of an appreciation of the, of the humans behind the athletes. And, and I feel like that was very much on display uh, in the aftermath of the Hamlin thing, and it's and it's heartening. It's heartening that we're we're there. I think as a as a sports culture and as a society. Well, you know, Jason and I talked about this uh, last week with regards to how the incident unfolded, and I said one of the big takeaways that I think we'll have, um, maybe with a little bit more benefit of hindsight and really understanding exactly what went on when the reporting flushes it out. But uh, the first responders that were there on the scene because Hamlin had to be resuscitated twice, once at the field and then once in the ambulance on the way to the hospital. And I think the one of the more remarkable things is the speed in which they do it, but how far along that component has come. Because if you go back to even when the Pronger incident happened, I mean, you're talking about 20-plus years now, first response was different, right? You didn't maybe necessarily have the tools or the immediacy or the staff or the protocols in place to do what like is quite literally a life-saving response. Uh, and that's a big difference from what I would say 20, 30, 40 years ago to now is the ability and the sophistication medically to be able to do these things and to have the trained individuals to be able to pull it off. I think that really speaks to where the sport has evolved off the field, off the ice, and on the sidelines. Right, and, and, to, and to have those conversations about what we need to do to make sure that, that these guys are safe. I mean, you think about the Alexis Sharapanov situation that happened many, many yes, years that's ago a good, that's in a that point. Clown, clown show, show of a league, the KHL. I mean, that was an extraordinary tragedy. And, and, and I remember at the time when we wrote about that story at Puck Daddy, just like, the, you know, I think we, we all did sort of follow-up stories of like, is the NHL prepared for something this to happen? And I think a lot of us were, were happy to see that, yeah, there are so many layers in place to take care of these guys if, if God forbid something tragic happens during a game and and we talked about this with pronger i mean tragic during a hockey game for the last 20 years has been either uh lacerations from skates or it's been some sort of medical emergency uh on the bench like the the bowmeister thing or the peverly thing so like you know we, we kind of know where in the realm of of of, uh, of emergency things are going to fall 
it's just that, you know, if there was ever a, a Hamlin situation, like what, what did that look like in the NHL? And, and you just don't know until it happens. Hey, Wish, the the Seattle Kraken are on a seven-game road trip, and the first four games of the road trip uh, yeah. through a few Canadian cities, uh, they have outscored the opponent, I think it's 22-7. to seven. They're 4-0, and oh, and they've got a pretty good record. They've got a really nice cushion in the standings right now in terms of the playoffs. But if you look at their team stats, like Martin Jones doesn't have an unbelievable save percentage. There's no one on the team, unless I'm mistaken here, that is having an unbelievable offensive-type season. I think their leading scorer in terms of points is Burakovsky with 33 points in 39 games, so there's not even a a point-a-game guy. Their PK is almost as dreadful as the Vancouver Canucks. How are they doing this? Well, they're they're doing it by by shooting, like, 13%. (laughs) The stats yesterday for what's happened in the last month in the NHL, just curious to see, in particular... I was looking up uh, Washington Capital stats to see how good they've been defensively, and they're like they're the second best team in the league defensively in that stretch. Um, and and I looked at the Kraken, and and their shooting percentage is like over twelve percent. It's by far the best in the league for the last month. It's obviously not sustainable. They're not going to be rolling teams like they are now. So you know, th- there's a bit of of smoke and mirrors happening right now with the team. But that being said, um, sometimes you you don't need a great goalie if you're able to kind of do things in front of the goalie to win games. And that's kind of what the Kraken have done this year. Like you asked that, that team last season, they were, they would tell you, we think we're good. We think that we play well. We think the underlying numbers tell us that we're a pretty good hockey team, much better than our record. And we just need to get a save now and again. And it doesn't have to be Martin Jones pitching a shutout. It could just be Martin Jones, not giving up a goal 90 seconds after they score, which is what Grubauer was doing last year. So they're kind of getting different goaltending, better goaltending than they were last year. And you can't discount the fact that this, this lineup uh, up front is really good. Like, they already had a, a collection of veteran wingers like, you know, Jordan Everly and Jaden Schwartz and players like that from the initial, uh, you know, expansion draft. But then they added in Burkowski, they bought in, you know, Borkstrand. Like, they've added a lot of guys to that mix. And then, what, what really kind of set the thing in motion, I think, was Benier showing up and giving them the number one center, allowing their depth chart to all tick down a spot behind him. And, and all of a sudden, now you've got a little bit more depth in the middle to complement a really good collection of scoring wingers. And it's, it's a pretty interestingly put-together team. And, and honestly, like you said, though, nobody's really a star on that team quite yet. You figure Beniers will get there eventually. Kind of feels like Ron Francis's Carolina teams, if we're being honest, right? Yeah. Like that was always a collection of guys that would all score like around 20 goals and they'd win games. You know, they'd win games because of it. And, and it seems like either because of the machinations of putting together an expansion team or because this is how Ron Francis does it by design, it kind of feels like those Carolina teams a little bit where nobody's, nobody's head and shoulders above the rest, but everybody's pretty good. Was it an obvious decision to send Shane right back to uh, Major Junior? Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, it, 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 whether whether or not it was fair to him, it was pretty clear how they felt about his his maturation as an NHL player and his performance so far this season. So, you know, I would rather see him, you know, get ice time and, and flourish and work on what they want him to work on and, and, and build confidence than see him you know, play nine minutes and then get scratched. Like, it's, that does him no good. And, and so I, I had no problem with the decision. 
and they made. Plus, he got to feel the glory of a Canadian championship in World Juniors. Yeah, that's true. Among us, he scored a pretty who nice goal. Who among us want to feel feel that golden glow, right, boys? Do you think we'll look back at that draft and Grant? I'm I'm not writing any of these guys off, just so people know. But you know, Shane Wright is is back in major junior. Slavkovsky is is struggling a bit for the Montreal Canadiens right now. Do you think we'll look back at that draft and go, man, that was a really tough draft to just get a handle on the talent uh, because of the pandemic? Um, it's possible. Like I always thought that the Slavkovsky thing, there was a, a, a certain amount of maybe uh, you know recency bias from the the from his performance in the Olympics. You know, like that was one of the only real showcase events that we had but that being said i mean it's hard to really judge that draft until we see some of these guys that we haven't even seen a a minute of yet like like simon nemich nemich the second pick from the devils i mean for all the talk about how people are hyped about how good luke hughes is going to be as an nhl defenseman i mean nemich's going to be great (laughs) he's played really well and so there's an anticipation that he could be you know, at the end of the day, uh, maybe the best player to come out of that draft. You got Cooley, you've got you've got Gauthier, you've got a bunch of different people. Sorry, my dog's barking. I you got a bunch of different people that we haven't really gotten a sense of what they're going to be yet. And and so I I'm not ready to like pass judgment on oh they they biffed the first two picks, but uh, but it is possible that somebody down down the lineup is going to be better than the first two guys. Do Do you think we'll see some trades soon? When we were wondering about Bo Horvat here in Vancouver, and I know. A lot of fans in Vancouver are kind of holding their breath, and not just out of frustration with the team, but they're holding their breath, uh, hoping that Bo Horvat doesn't have an injury. And the same to be said for maybe a couple of the other pending UFAs like uh, Luke Shen or Andre Kuzmenko, but mostly Bo Horvat. Do you think something might happen uh, soon with that, or do you think teams are so up against the cap that it, we're going to have to wait to closer to the trade deadline on March 3rd? I've been talking to some GMs for a thing next week about that, and and it's it's pretty obvious that some something will happen, right? Like like we're going to have a deadline. There's going to be players traded. Um, you know, there's I think a prevailing thought that maybe it's going to have to be one of these years where there's a lot of third party broker teams involved to help facilitate some of these trades um, and and share the cap cost amongst a few teams. That's a possibility, but. There's two factors at play here. One is the cap, which which obviously is not doing anybody any favors insofar as encouraging movement of, of large contracts. But like I said, the other thing is that no one knows who they are yet. Like, look look at the two conferences right now. Like, who are the teams that know they're going to be in the playoffs? Very very few. Like that can be convinced at this point that sacrificing, say, a first round pick in the Connor Bedard draft is a thing they should do right now because they're that confident they're going to make it. And then if you look the other direction at the teams that are at the bottom of the standings, there's only a handful that you can say are completely out of it right now. And then you've got a bunch that are kind of in that mushy middle of a, a good run could get them right back into it. Like, like should Ottawa be a seller right now? Maybe, but then we probably said the same thing about Buffalo two weeks ago and then they got right back into it. So in a lot of these cases, it's been hard to really identify what the teams want to do, and, and, and you can't have a robust trade market without, without there being a market. And so if you don't have multiple buyers or you don't have multiple sellers, you end up getting stasis, and that's kind of where we are right now. It'll, it'll, and that'll clear up. I mean, like the, right. the GMs I've talked to all said the same thing, which is that when you get closer to the deadline, those, those lines are more distinctly drawn, 
And we're going to know about some of these teams more in a month than we do now. But right now, it's like, who wants to pull the trigger on anything if you don't know exactly who you are yet? Wish. Bob, thanks a lot for doing it. Appreciate you taking the time. Enjoy the rest of the week. We'll do this again next Tuesday. You got it, boys. Thanks. Thanks, Thanks, buddy. Uh, Greg Wyshynski from ESPN here on the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650. Coming up on the other side of the break, going to preview tonight's game between the Canucks and the Penguins. A reminder, it's a 4 o'clock puck drop from Pittsburgh. All your pregame, your postgame, and the call of the actual game all right here on Sportsnet 650. So it's the Penguins tonight to set things up from the Pittsburgh side of things. Sean Gentilly from The Athletic is going to join us at 7 o'clock. Also in that 7 o'clock hour, we've got an open segment from 7.30 to 8, so we can take some of your questions into the Dunbar Lumber text message in basket, 650-650. Also, get a head start on your what we learns. Hashtag them WWL. What did you learn over the last 24 hours in sports? Let us know. We will do what we learns in the 8.30 segment. Uh, That comes after Thomas Drantz to kick off 8 o'clock. So we got a big show ahead. There's a lot more to get into. A reminder, the Dunbar Lumber text line is 650-650. Get a hold of us here at the show. You are listening to the Halford & Bruff Show on Sportsnet 650.